Welcome to the Cascade Church Portland podcast. We're a church that works to be both safe to be and safe to grow through our commitment to intentionality, diversity, curiosity, prayer, and advocacy. Enjoy! It is good to see all of your lovely faces. Regardless if you're smiling or not, you have a lovely face. Has anyone told you that? Um, so here's what we're going to do this morning. I, uh, I have like a little bit of nervous energy because I think we're going to have fun this morning, but I'm not quite sure. I know we'll have fun with Christmas music and gingerbread houses and pizza, uh, but we're going to see how this morning goes. I asked like, let's, let's experiment together, okay? So the first thing I need is I need two volunteers and here's all you have to do as a volunteer, because I don't like that, like, two volunteers, and like, now I'm going to saw a person in half, and you're like, what? Um, also, maybe don't raise your hand right away, uh, but here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Uh, to be a volunteer, you just need to be able to walk and be able to see and describe things that you see, okay? And I promise we won't intentionally embarrass you. Okay, two volunteers, anyone willing to, like, be brave, and <gasps> thank you, Angela, come on up, and one more person. Yeah, come on up, Angela. And one more person? Yeah, come on up, John. Perfect. That's great. She volunteered, I had to. Oh, nice. I love it. Would you mind grabbing that mic, Angela? Okay. John and Angela, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? I've said your name, but that's... I'm Angela. Yeah, you nailed it. <laughs> I'm John. Yeah, this is... You, you did it? I'm John. Okay, now it's officially on record for all the podcast people. Um, okay, so... What I'm going to have you do, I'm going to get out of the way. John, you should be over here. If you could, standing next to Angela, just describe what do you see in the room? Both of us at the same time? or No, we'll go one at a time. You start, Angela. One thing you observe, and then John. Yeah. Oh, um, I see a lot of plaid. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. John, I see a lot of plaid. That's good. John? Hmm. I see a lot of people. A lot of people. That's good. One more, Angela. It's very sunny coming through the windows. It's nice. It's like a effervescent glow. Ooh, effervescent. No pressure, John, but be I see gaps near the front. Oh. <laughs> okay, that's great. Now, here's what I'm going to have you do now. You noticed me just completely ignoring that one. Um, <laughs> I get it. You don't want to be close to me. So here's what we're going to do is I'm going to have Angela, if you wouldn't mind going to the back of the room. John, you, you come right over here. Stay here. That's good. Right next to Elvin. Who does our sound? Hi, Elvin. Okay, Angela, and you'll just yell and we'll relate it. I'm talking in two mics. Uh, <laughs> what do you see? Backs of people's head. That's good. John, what's something else that you observe? I see a clock up there that's got a double flashing in the middle of it. It says 10.52. Yeah, that's good. You see a clock. Angela, one other thing that you see from where you are. Yeah, the screen for the sermon. That's very good. And one more thing, John, that you see? I see Angela. Hey, that's a good one. Would you give John and Angela a round of applause? That's good. 
here's why we did that. Because I wanted you to see both of them and to see that there's, um, there's different perspectives that we can have based on where we are in a room. Now, if I asked you to say, between those two, which one was right and which one was wrong? Wouldn't that seem to be kind of a funny question? Is there a right and a wrong about how they're viewing the room? No. And if we had continued doing that over a long period of time, and if we had started at the beginning that John and Angela never shared kind of shoulder to shoulder the same view, if we just had Angela's and John's, would it be true that based on where the rest of you are singing, sitting, you might start to identify more with Angela? You might be like, yeah, I see the screen, this clock that John's talking about with flashing red light. I have no idea what he's talking about. What do you mean you see Angela? I don't see Angela. And over time, what happens is we start to, when we have different perspectives on the same situation in the same room, we can hear information of other people's observations and what they see, and we can start to say, yeah, I identify with it. That's true. That rings true for me. Or we can say, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't think that's true. I don't see that. I don't experience it. The reason why I wanted to do this is because knowing our context and stating where people are in the room is literally all we would need to have a greater idea of how to interpret the information they're saying. If I just gave you those two bits of information, you might say, well, I have to reject John's. I don't see any clock with red. I don't see any Angela. And you would agree with Angela's because there were things that you could see too. But if I just told you, hey, Angela's in the back of the room and John's in the front, you go, oh, okay. I get it. I can understand that. From time to time when we talk about the Bible, a lot of times I'll say a text without a context is a pretext for making it say whatever you want which is really long. It's not mine. This guy, Ben Witherington III, said it, and I liked it, especially because he's the third, so it must mean something, right? But what it talks about is when we come to the Bible, if we don't understand where the writers of the Bible were standing in the room, our default is to interpret the information we're receiving through where we're sitting in the room, or where we're sitting in history, or where we understand the world. There's this little cartoon that I love that's all about perspective. It's about the same conversation. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen this before. It's great. It's a guy on a deserted island going, boat! And a guy in a boat saying, land! Uh, which is great. Because at the exact same moment, they're looking for what the other person has, Right? And there's ways in which we walk through the world where we're yelling boat and someone else is yelling land. And we don't understand that they're actually, this is a part of the same story. It's one thing. Here's what's important, and, and the reason why I say this, is when we encounter people in our lives, or maybe you sat around a table from them a couple of days ago, and you hear information that doesn't make any sense to you, Instead of interpreting it through your lens and saying, well, that's clearly wrong because I don't see the world that way, instead to get more curious and to say, what perspective do you have on the world that that could be true for you? Tell me, tell me more about that. Tell me more how that looks. Tell me more about what that is. 
Because usually how we sort through the world is we're either agreeing or eliminating information all the time. And uh, one of the, the movements that I wanted to lead, I don't want to lead many movements, but I wanted to leave one about making the Bible weird again. Here's something to consider if you haven't. Every story that's written down in the Bible is the weird stuff that happened to these people. Because we don't write down the normal stuff. We don't walk around and saying, I made eggs this morning. I mean, that would just be like a diary, a list of things that happen. That's not what the Bible is. And if you think... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are stories about the life of Jesus. If you think we collected every single story about the life of Jesus, no, we didn't. You can add up the time frame, and if you're incredibly generous with how long each one of those stories would take, and you don't get three years at the end of it. There's lots of stuff that wasn't included. So when someone says something that's weird, and you nod your head and say, yep, makes sense to me, you're missing it. Someone's describing something from another part of the room and you're saying, oh, yeah, 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 from the Bible. We all agree that these things are true. We need to look at the Bible and say, what? That doesn't make any sense. This is the weird stuff. And I need to understand more about the context. I need to more understand more about these people because only when I do that work of understanding where they are in the room and what they have, now I can make it applicable to my life, to my world. Because if I don't understand their context, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to project my context on top of it. Does this make sense? And the reason why I'm really going into this is there's a lot of ways that people have used the Bible and talk about Bible and will quote Bible verses to you. And you're like, that doesn't seem right. That seems a bit off. And that means, usually for us, that it's an invitation for us to be curious and to say, why would we interpret it that way? Is it possible that there's another context and story that helps fill in these gaps? Because here's the thing. Once we do, once we understand the context, it can totally change the way we see our world and the way we engage in the world we're in right now. It's one of the things that breaks my heart when people are like, the Bible is boring. I'm like, this is just the weird stuff that happened. The Bible is so exciting. What's boring is a bunch of people in a room reading it going like, yep, sounds about right. What? The whole thing is insane. The whole thing is insane. And when we understand the insanity of that time, we can start to come to better grips with the insanity of our time and our lives and our world and what's going on. And this whole setup is because I think ultimately the section of scripture we're gonna look at Today, when we get, we continue in 1 John, I think this is exactly what the story is about. It's about perspectives, it's about context, and how do we see and understand the world around us. Are you, are you ready? Is that good? Okay, all right, awesome. If it wasn't, I would just say, well, pizza time. Let's go make some gingerbread houses. All right, uh, let's look at 1 John 2. We're going to start reading through some different verses here. Um, and to set the context, if you weren't with us last week, John is a letter uh, that is written to these little churches in a town called Ephesus. 
Uh, you don't need to know a lot about Ephesus, but what is important to know is it's a port town, which means lots of different people are coming and going. And most towns, cities, even in our world today, that are a center for a lot of trade, a lot of industry, uh, it tends to be a collection of a lot of new ideas and different ideas. And so John's writing this to churches, these small churches, to pass around to one another to help them interpret the world that they're living in. And the other thing that's important we talked about last week is John is addressing some major heresies. Heresies just mean ways that people have taken the story of Jesus and they've kind of morphed and twisted it into the way that they see and understand the world. Basically, they never took the perspective of Jesus. They just took Jesus' story and put it into their perspective. And they're like, yep, this makes sense to me. And what we talked about last week is a lot of the world, especially in Ephesus, was driven by uh, what's called kind of classical dualism, which means the world, the physical world that we engage with should not be trusted, is not good, is ultimately corrupt. And the best we can do is describe a world that exists as an idea. Uh, and this is uh, Plato, this is Aristotle, this is Socrates. These are major thoughts that they introduced into the world. And what's so significant about that is people took that understanding of the world, that everything physical can't be trusted and is bad, and then there's spiritual things, there's these ideas outside of the world that are good and can be trusted, and they didn't know what to do with Jesus, who was the embodiment of both. Spirituality and flesh in one body. And so they created these really fascinating ideas uh, we, we talked about last week, that basically Jesus was just a guy I mean, a pretty cool guy, but a guy. And then when he was baptized by John the Baptist, whoo, Christ came into Jesus, moved Jesus all throughout life. When Jesus is up on the cross, whoo, Christ leaves and Jesus is crucified. And what they, what they were doing with this is they were like, any good thing that came of Jesus was just in this window and it was when he wasn't fleshly. Or there's also the Gnostic belief that there was like a special kind of seed or knowledge you could take from the Jesus story. And if it was in some of us, we could be sinless. We could be free. We could be, basically would throw off our human bodies. And what John is doing in this is saying, nope, he's using two stories. He's using light and dark. He's using sin and, uh, I'm sorry, he's using flesh and spirit. And he's saying, but they're one thing. You can't pull these things apart. When you do, the whole story falls apart of who Jesus is. So he's addressing that because a lot of people are in these little churches and they're like, I don't know if that's right or I don't think I understand that. And they're starting to pull apart. So let's get into John 2. My dear children, I write this to you that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, there's a couple different ways that we can, we've talked about these verses or this understanding. The most important thing to note is that when John, who is Jewish and writing to a largely Jewish audience, what he is doing is saying this story about Jesus is for everyone, which is a massive shift from how Jews understood God and religion. They said God was for us and against them. They were the Jews. Everyone else was the Gentiles. And the thing that I can't even explain how mind-boggling and 
earth-shattering this was in the time of Jesus is Jesus was saying, no, I don't pay attention to your lines. I'm here for everybody. And this message, this good news, is for all people. So when John says that what, if we sin, that we, we come to Christ, that Christ is ultimately offering forgiveness of sins for all people, John is speaking to the universality of Christ. That Christ is for everyone. That no one gets to lay dibs to Jesus. No one gets to say, I call Jesus, he's mine, and you're not on team Jesus. And if you get on team Jesus, maybe, but until then, me. When we do that, we're undoing the work of Jesus. Jesus was moving an understanding of religion, understanding of spirituality to something that wasn't tribal, which means you believe this, you believe this, you believe this, and we kind of yell at each other and fight, or we ignore one another, but like we secretly in our meetings like, you're going to hell. Like we have these kinds of understandings. What Jesus was coming saying is your view of the world and your view of community is too small. It's bigger than that. And what can be fun is to kind of look that John who wrote this down, this wasn't just an understanding. There's actually a story from the life of Jesus where John learns this, which is kind of fun to look at. This is in Mark 9. In Mark 9, teacher said John, the same John who's writing this book, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told them to stop because he was not one of us. Isn't that fascinating? <laughs> someone was driving out demons, which by the way, demons don't come into people's bodies and their understanding of these time and do good things. It's not like, oh my gosh, they're a Zumba instructor now. Like when <laughs> demons are being driven out of people's bodies... <laughs> They're doing incredible harm, self-mutilation. They're doing incredible harm to the people around them. So they saw someone driving out demons, something that was painful and damaging to that person and everyone else, and they stopped them. Hey, 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 that's our thing. Don't do that anymore. And what does Jesus say? Do not stop him, Jesus said. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. What Jesus is saying is, you're doing that tribal thing again. You're calling dibs on me and my name. Honestly, you're being a little clingy. <laughs> this thing that we're talking about is bigger than just me and us and disciples. It's for everyone. So when John writes about this, this is a firsthand lesson that John learned the hard way and hopefully an encouragement for us to change and grow in our understanding of the world and who God is. That's what John is a testament of in the Bible. John had one understanding of Jesus after walking around with Jesus for a long time and then went, oh, it's bigger than that. It's different than that. It's not the way. It is the thing I experienced at first, but it's different than that. I have to change and grow in that. Continuing on in John 2, 3 through 8. John's kind of opening this up. This is forgiveness for everyone. We know that we have come to know him, speaking of God, if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. The truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Continuing on in 7 and 8, it says, Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one. 
which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet, I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Now, if your eyes glazed over a little bit during that section, good. It probably shone. Yet I, what? I'm not writing you a new command. This is an old one. Yet I am writing you a new command. What John is trying to do here is illustrate to the people that, look, this isn't something new. This has been with us forever. And yet, the way I'm describing it to you is new in a way you never understood it, which is a complicated way of thinking. Like, what does that mean? How do we understand truth in these ways? So, I want to do like a little experiment. Some of you may already know this story, and it won't be as exciting. Some of you have never heard of this song. won't be as exciting. But... If you grew up in the 90s, you're probably familiar with the band Semisonic, who wrote a great song that's still around, Closing Time. Have anyone ever heard Closing Time? They play it a little bit at the beginning of Closing Time, so maybe refresh your memories a little bit. Oh. Yeah, you get that piano in there, and you're like, oh, hello, 90s. Put it on like a warm blanket. <laughs> that's good. That's great. Closing time. Yeah, you guys familiar? Open all the doors and let... um, one of my favorite things is we played pickup basketball at this middle school gym, and like the gym closed at 10. Like it was done. It was like a late night thing. And so we would play like as long as we could. And one time the janitor who was closing it down just turned that song on, walked in while we were still playing basketball, and just started shutting off the lights. <laughs> And then just started sweeping, and we were dying laughing, like, that's hilarious, job well done. Nothing, just stone-faced. <laughs> it was the best comedy I've ever seen in my life. Okay, if you're familiar with the song, here's the lyrics from the beginning. Closing time, time for you to go out into the world. Closing time, turn the lights up for every boy and every girl. Closing time, one last call for alcohol, so finish your whiskey or beer. Closing time, you don't have to go home, but you can't. Stay here. Now, the singer talk about this song. Yeah, bar's closing. We're done. If you've heard the singer talk about this song, it's not about a bar closing. He talks about how when musicians or singers or people have a baby for the first time, they write their, like, baby song. Like, I have a kid now. And he's like, but it's kind of played out, and people are like, you know, they just think of, like, Stevie Wonder kind of did the best, right, that anyone's ever going to do it. Isn't she lovely? Isn't she wonderful? It's like, we can't beat Stevie, so, like, well, let's not try. He's like, so I hid my baby song in a song about a bar closing. The song is, if we go back to the first lyrics, time for you to go out into the world, is about the birth of his child. The, <laughs> the womb is closing. Closing time. <laughs> time for you to go out into the world, turn the lights up over every boy and every girl, and what he's saying, one last call for alcohol, is for himself and his partying ways. So finish your whiskey and beer. Um, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. <laughs> we can't be at the hospital. In the next uh, section of lyrics, um, this room won't open till your brothers or your sisters come. It's about having a baby. You're going. This room, or womb, won't open until your brothers or your sisters come. Gather your jackets, move it to the exit. I hope you have found again. 
Every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. It's beautiful. And if you doubt me, good. There's a YouTube video where he explains all of this as he's playing the song. This is what I love. It's always been true. That's not a new song. But there's a way we understand the song as we hear it. And then someone brings another perspective or another view or the person that wrote it explains, hey, this is what I meant. And you go, oh, this song can feel like a new command. It can feel like a new idea or a new thought. But the lyrics didn't change. The song didn't change. It's the same thing that's part of the reason why we started. To be perfectly honest, this is the reason, part of the reason why we started this church. Christianity isn't just at the high point right now, where everyone's like, Christianity, yay, in America, it's the best it's ever been, riding a high. We've taken some lumps as Christians recently. But I think if you come back to Scripture, if you come back to Jesus, you find something that's been true the whole time, that resonates truer than true. And you say, it's not a new gospel. We don't have to meet a new Jesus or create a new Jesus because certain forms of Christianity have been co-opted or used to do violence or exclusion or become tribal again. It's already there. It's already baked into the scripture. It is the story itself. There's something here to reclaim. And I think what John is saying to his audience is, I know this feels like something that's totally different. What Jesus is, what Jesus did, Jesus' resurrection, new life, I know it feels like we have to do something totally new. But hang on, hang with me. It's been here the whole time. Let me show you how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. Let me show you how the truth has been here the entire time. It's always been for everybody. I know what we did. I know about the wars. I know about the special chosen people that came for Abraham. But if you go back to the story, you see it was always for everybody. It was always bigger than that. Anyone who claims to be in the, the last section we want to look at here is in John 2, 9 through 11. It says, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in darkness and walks around in darkness. They do not know where they are going because darkness has blinded them. I think this section here about love and hatred, John's doing a very dualistic thing. Like there's people that love others and you walk around in the light and there's people that hate others and you walk around in darkness. And I think these two concepts are very much linked to the way that John opens this chapter where he's talking about sin. We understand sin and what sin is. But a lot of times we avoid sin or we don't talk about sin because we understand sin to be a highly individualistic thing. That your sin is basically the thing to repent about during our quiet prayer time and you close your eyes and go inside of yourself and you unearth your private sins and you ask God in a whisper to forgive them and then you open your eyes and you hope no one can read it on your face what it is and we go about our lives. I think when John is talking about sin, he's talking about societal sin. He's talking about the way we view each other. He's talking about the ways we have gone tribal and the ways we talk about us and them. And how 
a lot of us engage in othering techniques. When I say othering techniques, it's like the two perspectives. It's like John and Angela. I've stopped listening to the way you view the room, and I'm like, only an idiot could view the room that way. So like anyone who views the room like that, I'm not interested in listening to because it's the wrong orientation to the room. You're wrong, the way I hold it is right, and we step into this clear dichotomy, and I actually think that is what breeds sin, and harmful things to one another, to sin. It's what gives us permission to say hurtful and harmful things to one another. It's what gives us permission to do hurtful and harmful things to one another. Because you're not a part of me. You're over there. And the imagery that John is using in this is darkness in the room or light. Are we in a space where it's so dark and heavy that we can't even see each other anymore? We can't even have a conversation anymore? Or are the lights on where we can say, oh, I can see, I can see now why you would view things that way. I can see why you would come at it from that perspective. Stick with me here. Hate, as he talked about, the lights off. I think what John is saying is that hate says that we have to eliminate all perspectives but one. And love says we have to learn all perspectives are one. Hate, no, 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 you're not a part of me. Hate, or to other, or to separate, or to say, you're, no, 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 you're not a part of me, which we all do in our own ways. Some of us, when we're talking with one another, and you're like, hey, where'd you grow up? You're like, ugh. I've done it. I've said the town I grew up in, Farmington, California, is a good place to be from. Because I am separating myself. I'm not that. I'm not that place. Or we'll sit around and trade stories about, yeah, I just had this conversation with my parents or my sibling. Or these people that I grew up in high school that friended me on Facebook. I just blocked them. Do you know what they posted? Because I'm creating a, I'm not them. They exist over here. And to do that is to remove the humanity. It's to remove that there's one story that we're ultimately a part of. And it's to divide up and to say, my story is the story that matters. My perspective is the story that matters. And usually what we do when we tie it in religion is we say, God is in my perspective and God is not in that perspective. Now, when I say this, that love leads to say that all perspectives are one, let's be really clear about what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that everything is good. And to say, oh, those people that burned down your house, those people that stole your car, those people that did something awful, you just don't understand them enough yet. You just need to go have some tea and then it will all be fine. No. Awful, horrible things are done in our world all the time. I'm also not saying that sin doesn't exist. In fact, the backdrop of this love and hate, this way of understanding and seeing the world, is the manifestation of sin, of awful things that deny the image of who God is and denies the way that the image of God shows up in everybody around us. Sin absolutely exists. And I'm not saying that you have to agree with everyone. I'm not saying that if you disagree with someone else, I am saying is wrong because you just haven't tried hard enough. What I am saying is 
Have we done the work relationally with one another to say, deep breath, there's one God who created all people. Regardless of how obscured, regardless of how completely opposite it is of my perspective of the world, this person is ultimately a child of God whose sin, whose wrong, whose things they've done, violence against themselves and against the world around them, Christ came for. And this is a person that I ultimately belong to. And I think in this, the imagery of family works. Do you ever have this perspective where, like, you're at home, if if you had a sibling growing up, and you will fight and you will call your brother and sister the worst of all names? Like things that would make us collectively blush. Probably some things I've never even heard of before you've called your siblings. But when you go to up something about your sibling, and you're like, back up. That's my sister. That's my brother. You don't get to talk to them or that way. You don't get to talk about them that way. Usually what that's exposing is where our circles lie. These are my people, and though you're, you're outside of it. And what happens if we start to see and experience the world as an ever-widening circle that God is asking us to engage and to be a part of? Last thing I'm going to do before we're going to do kind of a prayer exercise to close our morning. We can disagree vehemently with beliefs and ideas and political policies and all kinds of people. I actually think it's good and healthy to be engaged enough to say, I don't think that's actually helping people. But is the orientation behind it love or is it hate? Love is, I disagree with that because I need to eliminate that viewpoint. Love's orientation is, I need to engage with that viewpoint because I don't understand it. I don't know where it comes from. And one good test to find, if you think of someone that gets your blood pressure moving in a particular direction, what would you do if they actually changed? It's a hard test that I have to run on myself. There are certain people in the world that if they were to do a 180 on their beliefs, the way they orient themselves on the world, I would be like, ugh. I've been rooting for you to go down for so long. I couldn't possibly switch to be like, yay! (laughs) A redemption story we'll make a movie about, I guess. And what that exposes is my orientation at the root of it is, is hate, which I'm describing, not to use just a, a harsh, instead of saying, I want the person, I want to eliminate your perspective so that mine wins. Instead of saying, I want the perspective of God to come true, then that should lead me to celebrate when I see anything that looks like the spirit of God moving and working in the world. And so it's good sometimes to sit with our feelings and our emotions and where am I at Because I think that this is the engine that drives sin. It's not sin itself to have these thoughts and wrestle with. We don't have to sit and wallow in shame when we have thoughts about certain people like just failing spectacularly. But we do have to become aware of them and to be aware of their impact in the world and the way that we engage and how we talk about people and how we talk to people. 
This is what I think is the great hope for the Jesus story. Too often we preach a Jesus story that's too small. Our Jesus story is one day Jesus will come for us to take care of. Everyone else suffers. This is already on our side and everyone else burns. Or everyone else suffers. And it takes on usually what iteration that is yours. That we love the Jesus of vengeance. We love the God of vengeance on some level. That someone out there, even if you have one or two people, I'm not saying like you have a bunch of enemies, maybe just a enemy. If that enemy, you're like, I really want Jesus to make them pay, I think Jesus would say, I don't know that you got the story. I don't know that you caught the weirdness of this whole thing, that it is one story, that I came to redeem all people, to be in all people, to work through all people, not for you to convince all people that they're wrong, but for me to rise up through my image planted in each and every person. And unless we're rooting for one another, our hearts are being driven by a kind of hate, not love, that there's one perspective. I don't know if you are yet. Ooh, I'm nervous. I don't know if you are yet. And full permission here, okay? I'm not saying in this you have to agree with every person. In fact, the opposite. Love leads us to confront. Love leads us to say, that's hurting people. That's not okay. Love leads us, a love of self, leads us to say, I can't be in relationship with you anymore. I can't put myself in this environment anymore because it's so painful and it's so destructive, okay? And a lot of times, we did a whole message series on this. Like, we can talk about it, a whole thing. I just want to introduce it. We talked about the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation, which we blended together as one idea, and they're totally different. Forgiveness is no longer am I holding the things that you've done against me, against you. Reconciliation is let's go back to being in relationship together. The Bible calls us to forgiveness. It does not call us to reconciliation. It has used the name of God. And in fact, that misunderstanding in the church has used the name of God to push people back into abusive relationships over and over and over again. This is not that. This is not that. This is understanding what is ultimately at the root of my heart and my how do I see people. So we're jumping into the deep end of the pool. We're going to put some images of different people that you are familiar with in our world. Not in this room. It's not that personal. <laughs> because I want you to be able to sit and say, what gets triggered when I see these faces? When I see what they largely reflect? And can I see these faces? Can I take a deep breath and know I'm okay in this room? And is it possible that I see that there is an image of God that ultimately my prayer is that they would change and transform more into the likeness of who Christ is in them, that I am rooting for their progression, that I'm rooting for their movement, casting out demons. And Jesus is like, what are you doing? And then later, John's like, hey, Jesus came for everybody. Can we move that same progression where we say Jesus is for everyone? So we're going to put up an image of Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. We're going to put up an image of Antifa, and we're going to put up an image of Charlottesville. We're going to put up an image of Black Lives Matter and an image of our police force. 
The belief here, the reason why we're putting up these images is currently in our country, this is where real tension and maybe you feel your blood pressure rising a little bit. If the gospel doesn't have something to say in the real world here and now, I, I don't know what it is. And ultimately, I don't think our practice of church should be re retreating from the real world to have hypothetical talks. I think it's actually seeing and facing how it really looks in the world. If this is too much for you right now, it's okay. Faces will kind of cycle through them slow. Close your eyes, be able to pray. But if you're able to, I want you to look at the faces. We'll kind of cycle through them slowly and see what comes up for you and see what it does with you to sit with those different images and faces. What does it look like to pray and see that we are all connected as one? We can put up our first image. I invite you to look, I invite you to pray. We could put up the next images. The anti-fascist group in T4. 